What's up, y'all? This is Ramel Watley, and welcome to Truck and Hustle, the podcast for trucking entrepreneurs. If you want to learn about the trucking industry from the business side of things, you're in the right place. Every week, I interview the people who are making it happen on a daily basis. I get them to share their successes, their failures, and sometimes even their secrets. The goal is to show you how you too can create financial freedom in the booming trucking industry. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Why do people do business with us? They see the brand. They see our uniform couriers. They see those wrap trucks. And they see it over and over and over again. If I had to share with any business owner, the most important role that I have is people, culture, and numbers. Turn my mic up. For you. Take there. Yeah, yeah, uh. On the road to the riches, life takes a toll like bridges. Good friends become foes and snitches. Better watch who knows in your business. All right, let's get it. Let's get it. Hustle fam, hustle fam. We are back with another amazing episode. And I am here live in Long Island City. Is that where I'm at? That's about right. Long Island City. Long Island City with my man, Mr. Larry Zogby, the CEO. What do you call yourself? CEO, president? I call myself the janitor. I don't want to. janitor. But CEO would be fine. He's he's a well-paid janitor. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Of, of, Of RDS delivery service man last mile solution here in the tri-state area first of all sir welcome to truck and hustle thank you you're gonna <laughs> age me when you call me sir listen there's nothing wrong with that man i, I like when people call me sir it makes me feel stately you know? right. stately I, I, is good i feel like a like a royal or something like that man. there's nothing wrong with that it's a good thing so, so just how about larry is that good it's perfect all right all right so larry Welcome to Truck and Hustle, man. Thank, I, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. So, so we've been we we took the tour. We've we've been around uh, the, the 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 space, beautiful space. I love the green everywhere. We're gonna we're gonna talk about that, and hopefully we can show you show you guys some pictures of the space. But really awesome things you guys are doing here and last mile delivery. The Truck and Hustle fam loves the topic, so I know there's a lot of value that you can add to that discussion. So we're gonna get into that. But, um, you know, first, we always have to start at the beginning. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us where you're from and kind of where things started for you. Wow. I'll give you the short story. Graduated college in 1986. Got into this business. I bought it from my dad. It was probably doing about $150,000 in gross revenue. We bought it for $120,000. Okay. I gave him $25,000 down payment. And I had to pay him a hundred and change over the next five years. I was broke and back in the restaurants trying to figure out how to grow the business. Okay. Uh, from there, um, we've gone through multiple places, um, Brooklyn and two spots in New York City. And now we have our new domain here in Long Island City, a 10,000 square foot facility. Uh, we just got here three years ago and we're delighted to be in Long Island City. Got you, got you. Love it. All right, so you said in 86, you bought it from your dad, right? Yeah. And you were out of college? Yes. All right, so let's let's predate a little bit, because I like, I like to understand people's backstory to understand who they are. So prior to college, tell me about yourself in high school. Tell me a little about Larry back in, let's say, 83, 80, 82, 80. It's interesting. My dad always wanted to go to Florida, so I did my last two years of high school in Florida. Um, my first job was in Publix. My second job was at a uh, Lighthouse Point Yacht Club. Okay. And then for five years, I worked in restaurants. 
So before I actually took on this business, I was always in catering and restaurants. What type of restaurants? High end, probably work for people that were mob related. <laughs> <laughs> what did what, you do? What was your job in the restaurant? My, my job. Um, I you, actually worked very hard. You hit hard the gun in, in, the, in the bathroom? Uh, no. <laughs> I ultimately managed the restaurant. Okay. Okay. Got you. So you did that for five years. I did. And then in 1986, my father asked, hey, listen, I hate this business. I have maybe 15 employees. I do 150000 in gross sales. We're gonna, I'm going to sell it for 120, dollars 125000 And here are, the, here are the terms. Okay. So tell me about the business at that time when you first got involved. So the reason why it says RDS... He purchased it from two partners. It, RDS stands for Radiology Delivery Service. Okay. Right? It was a specialized service for radiologists, moving medical records from the radiologist to the doctors. And then from there, it evolved. Okay. So what made him start that business? How did he get into that? Oh, that, that that's niche? a great question. So... 1964, he gets involved with his father's business, and he's got 60 operators making clothes. Unions came and destroyed his business. He's got five kids. He's out of work. How do you be out of work for five, with five kids? Mm, that's it's not a, a good combination. Bad thing. Found this business for sale in the New York Times and bought it. Really? And hated it. So he had it from 1974 to 1986, hated it. So ran the business at night and taught school in the day. Oh, wow. So he actually found the business in the New York Times. It was like, there's this radiology. Radiology delivery, delivery service, two partners, two brothers. They were they wanted to sell it. He bought it. And you said he taught school? He taught school in the day. During the day. Ran the business at night because it was really an overnight delivery service for the time that he had it. What what made him want to, was he just like an entrepreneur at heart? What made him want to have like two careers in, in, in sorts where he's already a teacher and then he's also going to you know buy this business? I love that question. You're back into it because you're married with five kids. <laughs> so got you. You got to make, you you gotta gotta make, make as stuff happen. As, as you can. You got it. Got you. All right. Well, as with your father being an entrepreneur and a teacher, how was it for you coming up as a kid? We lived in a very strict environment. We're five kids born between 1962 and 1969. A lot of discipline. He looks at you. You can't get out of line. <laughs> Stuff. Right. Growing up with hand-me-downs, you're growing up with tight budgets, you're just growing up, and it's all good. Got you. Okay. So your father is teaching, he's running this business, and in 86 he says, Hey, I'm going to sell this business, not necessarily, necessarily to you, but I'm going to sell it, period. No, right? that, that's the conversation. He went to my older brother. I'm the middle child out of five. Okay. Older brother said no. Second child is my sister. So she was a nurse. He comes to me. He says, if I sell it to you, you take your fourth brother. Mm. My fifth brother was too young. Got you. Why did you decide to take on the business? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I thought with the money I saved, I was going to open a restaurant. And it was just an opportunity. I could have been young, dumb, but it's a business. Let me figure it out. Got you. So obviously you quit the restaurant business, right? I you did. Managing restaurants. You get into this radiology delivery business. Tell me about, if you can go back and recollect, tell me about your first 
couple of months running the business. You're a new entrepreneur at that time. Tell me about the emotions you're going through and just your experience at that time. It's a rush. You do everything. I don't know if I liked it. I didn't like it. But all I know is I get up at six in the morning. You do everything. But here's a funny story. You're answering the phones and taking orders. And then somebody calls you with a new opportunity. And I go underneath the desk and I have to go speak. I have to change my voice and say, this is the sales department. (laughs) Try to make a sale. Right. What do I know? I didn't know anything. At the end of the week, we're not making money. Because the money we got, the time it gets taxed, the time you pay the note. Where did I find myself? Back in the restaurants. Mm, Making money just so I could pay rent to get out of my own home. Wow. So 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 when you purchased the business from him, how, how many employees did, did, did you guys have? 10 to that? 15. 10 to 15 employees? In, in, in the street. In the street. So it was me and my brother working the phones and working everything internally. Okay. How were those deliveries made at that time? Tell me about the operation. Predominantly, my father would interview people in the city by a fire hydrant. That was his office. Okay. Okay. So there's no physical space at this time? No, 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 no. Okay. His physical space was in Brooklyn, but he met his his people at the fire hydrant somewhere right. in the city. All right. And that was his office. Okay. He would interview them. Uh, he typically interviewed senior citizens. And that was interesting to me because um, senior citizens are retired, but they need to be involved. Mm. They can't be home. Got you. And so he had a lot of people that 10 or 15 people were part-timers. And they... They were responsible, and they did enough, and it worked. So that was intentional with the older older population? His recruitment style was intentional. Got you. Okay. So you, you get into this business. Now, How what what are you guys actually using to deliver these, these radi, radiology equipment? Yeah, like- messenger bags. So we're delivering medical records. They could be x-rays, reports. Um, we're using vehicles and foot messengers to make deliveries. So actually people on foot. Yep. People on foot and vehicles. And in the evening, we would pick up from the radiologist and then deliver to the referring doctor. Okay. Think of a woman who needs a um, mammogram. Yeah. She goes to the radiologist. They take it. And then we deliver that to her doctor so they could read the results. Okay. Mammos, CAT scans, yada, yada, yada. Got you. All right. So who were there other, were there any other businesses like that? During that time that were that was competing with you directly, like what was the landscape? Were you guys like kind of unique in doing what you did, or were there like a lot of guys out there doing it? I would love to say that I knew the answer to that question, sure. but I have no idea. Okay, I would almost think though, in retrospect, that he had a lock on radiology because from 1986 to at least 2000 or 2008, we did lock up the radiology world. Okay, and that radiology world disappeared. You got to ask me why. Why? Over time, technology figured out how to send those records through technology without the messenger. Mm. So if you had a mammogram, if you had a CAT scan, you could push it through technology and you don't need to hand deliver it. Got you. All right. So what was that time span when that started to happen? Uh, Say the late 90s or early 2000s. So you're talking about probably this vertical of business of medical records could have been over a million dollars. And then it digressed to probably about a hundred thousand. Okay. So obviously that impacted your business now. This is why just like truck and hustle, (laughs) we have to hustle to find other verticals. Right, right. Okay, cool. So you have to pivot. 
So you said that was in the 90s when, when that kind of started happening? Where yeah. technology started picking up and there wasn't as much of a need for that? So what did you guys do? What did you do? Because you're, you're, you're leading the pack here. I'll tell you a great story. 2001, I buy my first home. November. July of 2022, we buy our first business condo, our condo in New York City, where we put our office. Okay. Got it? Got it. Six months. Home, condo. What happens in August, a month later? We lose a half a million dollars. Mm. <laughs> I could tell you the story. It was ugly. Okay. But what did that force me to do? Go on the street and go sell. Okay. Go get clients. And that's what I did. I just went into the street every single day, knocked on doors. I understood certain verticals that can give us business. And I would just go down that path. Got you. Could you tell me this, the million-dollar story? Or is that too personal? No, which one? The, how you lost a million dollars. Oh, it was a half a million dollars. Half a million. Hmm. Yeah, we could tell you that story. I'm going to frame anyone out. But back in early 2000, when you're working with hospitals and you're working with industries... Um, people could be bought. And so let's just say I'm the messenger. Let's just say they're buying florist. Let's say they're paying for car service. So whoever had the bigger wallet would go find that guy and give him a cut of the action. Mm, okay. So after 15 years of service to a particular community, we got cut out by an email. Gotcha. Because somebody wrote him a check. Gotcha. Followed the story for four years and they went to jail. Wow. Wow. Okay. This is, this is America. Oh. <laughs> All right. So um, get, getting back on track here. So now you said after that happened, you obviously take a huge hit and you have to hit the street and you have to sell. So tell me about that. Who are you? What are you looking for? Like, because obviously at, to this point, your whole world was kind of like niched in one particular space. Very. Right. So how do you know who needs your service? How do you know where to go? Tell me about what you did to get back on your feet. I got to tell you, I'm too old. I'm too tired. I'm too <laughs> fucking blind. It's a long time ago. Yeah. But we did figure out that the public relations industry was a hot market. And the reason for that is because the PR companies are producing product for their clients. And if they're promoting soap, toothpaste, a perfume, or any product, they would say, hey, come to our office, pick up 50 samples or 50 deliveries and deliver it to the media because the media has to smell it, taste it, talk about it, write about it. So public relations was a big opportunity. Okay. But I think we need to fast forward to some good stuff. Okay. We're going to get there. That worked. <laughs> no, we're going to get there. We're going to okay. get there. All right. So, so you, you get into public relations. All right. And there's a lot of lessons learned, right? Okay. So all through growing up is how do you hire? How do you recruit? How do you bring in administrative people to help you? There's a lot of lessons learned 35 years later as I pause and I reflect. Because every single day I ask myself the same question. How did I get here? Right, right. Every day. And and that's and I'm trying to help you figure it out exactly right oh, now. Oh, I know as, the answer. As, as we go through this I know, I know the answer. Well, we're trying to, we'll get, we'll get to the answer. Okay. All right. So you find you find a new niche, right? Public relations, you kind of talk about that. A lot of media. 
Great. So is that's kind of where you start focusing on? Is you start focusing on all different Well, it's that. But then since we are involved in radiology and hospitals, then we have to figure out how do we deliver medical equipment and how do we understand how to deliver medical specimen. Okay. Because we're already in that arena. So we had to learn how to deliver that stuff. And we did that because okay. the doors were open to us. Okay. So we were accepted. Got you. When, when you say learn, what does that mean? Learn, learn how to deliver. I'm, so I'm sure that's a little deeper than what like, the sounds, if what I sounds like. If I pick up this medical record and I take it from point A to point B, we deliver it. But when you handle a specimen, you could have multiple types of specimen, right? You could have a, a specimen that's ambient, room temperature. You could have a specimen that needs refrigeration or a specimen that needs to have dry ice. So we had to learn the gamut of how to pick up a specimen, deliver it, and keep it in its, how do you want to say this? Keep it secure right. till we deliver it. How, how difficult was that process to, to learn about that stuff? It's just learning about confidence, education, and understanding the process. Okay. All right, got you. So obviously you guys get that damn pack. You start doing that. What? Tell me some more about the growth. At, at this at this point, how many vehicles do you guys have? Just so I can understand what the business looks like at this point. What What are you using to deliver these specimens and so forth? Like, just give me an idea. What in what 1993, I that probably uh, crossed a million dollars. So if we go backwards for a second, in '86, the business is grossing 150 grand. If I'm not mistaken. We break a million dollars in 1993. We're okay. using a combination of vehicles and foot messengers to push forward with our service. Okay, okay. And we're doing it all on paper and pencil. Got you. All right, cool. So that's 1993. So keep on going yeah, up. So Tell me then, how the business evolves over time. Now, now we'll start kind of fast forward into the maturation of, of RDS. We needed to find a system and a process. So we needed technology, needed a courier platform. And we had to go down that path. And so we went down that path. And that path is interesting, right? A lot of crossroads when you have to make a decision to write a check as opposed to um, figuring out what to use. Okay. Now, is that something that you guys come up with yourself or is that something that you outsource to find like a platform? So tell us a little bit about that. Great question. You join industry, I've joined industry um, associations, start to attend meetings, and then start to go on conferences. Mm. And by going on conferences, you start to trade some internal secrets. You learn. There's education. There's politics. And that's the industry that led me to these platforms. Got you. So when you're, when you're thinking about that and you're, and you're kind of building out and, and growing a delivery service, could you just kind of give us like some of the, the frameworks or some of the things that, sh- that are most important to you uh, and that should be most important to anybody in this, in this industry? Now at fifty seven, looking back, mm-hmm. or before? I mean, well, now, and then we could we could we kind of like go back and forth, and you could say what you have now in place and what you didn't have now have in place at that at that time that you had to build on. If I had to share with any business owner, the most important role that I have is people, culture, and numbers. My job is to earn the trust of my people. My job is to make sure the culture is right, and my job is to have a pulse on the numbers so we could pivot at any any time. Mm. It's the most important aspect of a CEO. But most people don't learn that lesson 
until they probably cross $5 million in sales. But ask me why. Why? Because as a CEO goes through the journey of one to five million, they're always in the center of the story. We are here live at OTR Solutions HQ. I'm here with my partner, Jonathan. Man, listen, factoring is an integral part of the transportation industry. Why is factoring important? Absolutely, Ramel. In this economy, in this market, cash flow is king. Cash flow is the key to growth. If you have a young trucking company or if you've been in the industry for years and you want to take that business to the next level, we're absolutely a company that can help. So I hope you'll give us a call today. Let us know what we can do to help you out. Get the rest and roll with the best. Let's go. Um, and what happens when you cross the barrier of about $5 million, you can't be in the center of the storm. And when you're out on the outside of your business looking in, you need to be able to have the right people in the right seats, make sure the culture's right, and make sure the numbers are right. Because you're not in the center of the storm anymore. Mm. Does it make sense? I like that. I like that. How, how do you earn the trust of your people? It's a great question. By being truthful. And by firing people. And by telling people why you fired them. Right? So a lot of people are conflict-averse. Really conflict averse. When people work in your company and put their personal agenda against the core values of the company and the leader doesn't call them out, there's hell to pay. So we need core values, we need a vision, and we need a leader that's going to hold people accountable so they don't put entitlement in front of their agenda. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. So would you say you believe in like firing fast, like not not waiting till I mean, just just waiting for something to go wrong. You kind of just get I, it, nip I, it in the I, bottle. I have a mentor. His name is Jack Daly. OK. Four words. Yeah, it is four words. Hire slowly, fire quickly. Right. Right. <laughs> hire <laughs> slowly, fire quickly. Yeah, no. Okay, I got you. All right. And this the second thing you said, you said people. What was the second the second point you made? My job right now. Yeah. At my size business. But if I had to go back a long time ago, I I, I wish I knew what I knew now. People, culture, numbers. Culture. That's that's a word that's thrown around a lot. It is. What 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 does culture mean to you? Because I think people have a lot of different definitions as to what culture is in their It's a great question. And that culture is getting people, you earn trust, we do activities together, and we break down these invisible walls so all the teams are working together. If the leader is turning their back on internal conflict inside of the community, of where people work, there's going to be hell to, hell to be paid. Part of driving a cultural movement inside of the company requires strategic thinking, investing money into doing activities with the people that you work with every single day. Now you can't do it with, I, I employ over a hundred people. So we might do three events a year with the whole hundred people plus, but I spend more time with the internal community. We probably do six events to bring people together. You could ask me why. Why? When we eat together, and when play together, it breaks down these invisible walls. And we could see 
each other from a different point of view. Mm. Does that make sense? Makes sense. And we get to experience different experiences together. Yeah, I like that. You said know your numbers. That was the last thing. When did you know it was important to know your numbers? What happened to you? It's a to, great question. To make you know that it was important. Great to know your numbers? question. Probably when I lost three hundred thousand. And the only person that made money was my salesperson. <laughs> that was great. It was just fuck. It was great. Effing awesome. That's all I could say. Tell me about that. Uh, we went through a transition of independent contractors to an employee-based company. So I'm just going to give a little context. Yeah. If you are an independent contractor working for me, we negotiate a rate, and it's easy. Let's say you make 50 or 55 cents on every dollar. It's done. We transitioned to an employee company, and I wasn't smart enough to understand all of the costs that it takes to run a vehicle. So if somebody said to me right now to stick a key in the car and turn the engine, most people can't answer the question. It's about $37 an hour. All in. Can you break that down? Yeah, I could break it down. Yeah. It's the cost of the vehicle, the cost of the insurance, workers' comp, some contribution for accidents, that person's salary, uh, paid time off, and we can keep going. So everything that we need to understand about an employee, everything we need to understand about the overhead to that vehicle, including parking and every contribution of tickets, contribution for parking, fuel. So there is a model of what does it cost to run a vehicle, what does it cost to run an employee, and we understand those numbers, and we test them every quarter. So if it costs me $37 an hour to put the key in the car, imagine how much I have to make in yeah. order to pay that cost. You got it. So Which got me to that brand. Got you. Got you. Got you. All right. So you, well, we got away from something. I know we were talking so, so, about So something. the question was, what happened to you initially that made you really oh, the numbers, you the that numbers, you the numbers, the numbers, numbers, right? And obviously by that breakdown, we can say you're somewhat fanatical about your numbers, right? You want like, me to tell you what I told you before? Yeah. I let, sleep with my numbers more than I sleep with my wife. I'm right, not right, proud right. of that. I'm not proud of that. Got you. Got but you. I am married 25 years and I love my wife. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Um, I'm, I'm close to you. almost. <laughs> so, 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 all right. So we took, it's we, back to the numbers though. Yeah. Back to the numbers. Let's get back to that. I got intoxicated by looking at a piece of business that was 300,000 top line. And so I didn't know my numbers, but I got, I wanted the 300,000. I didn't understand my cost. Now this was a customer. When you say a piece of business, you mean this was an opportunity? Yeah, an okay. opportunity. Okay. So I was attracted to the 300 yep. top line. I thought I knew my numbers, but I didn't. But I learned that lesson the hard way. Okay. And that's why I sleep with my numbers more than I sleep with my wife. Gotcha. It only took me one lesson to figure out how to take a beating. Gotcha. You don't want to make that same mistake multiple times. Yeah, no, 100%. So after you learn that lesson, you start really getting, like I said, fanatical about the numbers. And now you kind of put that. That's extremely important to you. All right. So so let's get back into the business, right? Unless you want to go I want to go else. there for a second. Okay. It is important because so many customers come to me, prospects, I should say, and ask me to do a piece of business with them. And I tell them I'd love to. And then I can't. And I show them where the numbers are. Because they're coming to me thinking something because there's the Amazon effect. There are so many different effects that live here now where Amazon and all the big companies teach people that delivery is for free. It's not for free. 
And then small business owners think that delivery is for free. And we can't do business if you can't pay the right number. Mm. Does it make sense? Yeah, 100%. So how, how do you combat that? I mean, obviously you have to it's turn a great some question. people down. We turn a lot of people away, but we educate them. And we educate them to go back to their own business model and check their own business model because they were doing it on the come. They were thinking if Amazon could do it, if this company could do it, uh, we could do it for the same price. And they realized they couldn't. Mm. We make more money by saying no. <laughs> wow. But we collect their information and we advertise to them. But that's another conversation. Do they end up coming back? Yes. <laughs> because like anything else, we believe we tell the right story. I say it authentic. We, we say it authentically, but they can't understand that somebody else is selling it cheaper. So they buy price instead of service mm. because they didn't price their service the right way. Gotcha. It's a cascading effect. So, so typically, your your customers are coming to you, or are you doing more sales? Like, how do you? Oh, that's a great question. Because of the brand, I would say we have more inbound sales, and that's great. That's sexy. That's good. But we have a responsibility as a company to still focus on outbound selling and going after verticals that make sense to us. Right. Is that fair? Yeah, for sure. And 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 when they come to you, why are they coming to you? Why why are they choosing uh, RDS? I'm think I'm an, an anomaly. If that's the right word. Okay. All my competitors are independent contractors. I'm an employee based company. So I'm going to answer your question in a minute. Okay. Why are they coming to us? Right. Yep. We're going to go with why. So my competitors, ninety nine percent are ICs. Independent contractors. You got it. Okay. I'm an employee-based company. You look at that wall? Yep. We are a brand. And so I invested money in the brand. And when I go to sleep at night, I have a higher cost basis, less liability. Higher cost, less liability. And I see lower cost, higher liability. Inverse relationship. Why do people do business with us? They see the brand. They see our uniform couriers. They see those wrap trucks. And they see it over and over and over again. And why is that special in New York City? You really want to know this. Yeah, I do. New York City is special. It's got 8 million people in about three miles. Traffic moves at about 20 miles an hour. And right now they have, they're trying to reduce the speed limit another five miles less. Mm. <laughs> so with my wrap vehicles, you could see my vehicles everywhere. If we were in Texas, 25 vehicles, you're on multiple highways, you're not going to see them. But in a concentrated city, three miles, 8 million people, where traffic's moving 25 miles an hour, my 25 vehicles look like four times that. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. What, what type of customers do, do you have that's looking for your service? Great question. 30% of our business still comes from the medical community. Okay. But it's different. It's not medical records. It's specimen, medical equipment, and pharmacy. The other 70% is a um, end COVID. So we're moving thousands of COVID samples every single week. 
and the other 70% is a mixed bag of corporate America. Mm. Does it make sense? Corporate America, what type of Well, you could think uh, construction. Okay. So let's think of a client that I have that is selling. You live on the Upper West Side, the Upper East Side, wherever you're living, and you want tile. So you buy tile, and that tile or stone has to be shipped to your home. So we're moving tile. Okay. Uh, different products so people could fix their homes. Okay, got you. How, how you, you have different types of vehicles. I'd, yeah. I'd like you to kind of explain that. And then also, can you tell me about like how you guys think about space and how do you, how do you utilize the space in your different vehicles to get different jobs done? It's another great question. So I decided to work with Ford, and Ford has a variety of vehicles. I, I hate to speak jargon, but I'll speak there. It's a Transit Connect. It's a smaller vehicle. So we'll use that smaller vehicle to deliver routes, let's say specimen, payroll, or smaller stuff, right? They're driving more miles, smaller packages. Then you have a regular van, which is probably about nine feet long and four feet high. And then you have sprinters that are six feet high and 12 feet long. Mm. So different vehicles could accommodate different Capacity. Gotcha. And we also have trucks. Okay. What kind of trucks? Like street trucks, box trucks? Um, trucks with lift gates, okay. anywhere from 16 to 24 foot. And what are, what are those typically delivering? They are delivering the tile. They're okay. delivering pallets. They're delivering stuff that's really heavy. So it's like LTL? Like are you? No, no. LTL is a different animal. Okay. LTL, it's a great question, is if I want to take something to another state, I don't want to go direct, so I rent a piece of that truck, and they aggregate. You rent it. It's kind of like you're renting space on a truck. Right. right. That's not what you're doing with me. Somebody wants to move something by the truckload, and they want to move it now. It goes from point A to point B. Okay. Got you. And typically, what uh, radius are you working in? How far does most of your vehicles go? Good question. I would say not more than 100 miles, but I would say probably all our business is done within 50 miles. Right here in the New York State, in the New York metropolitan area. Got you. And are, are you guys like billing your customers by piece or is it by the delivery? Like, can you explain kind of how that works? From a pricing point of view, you have different pricing programs. So you could charge a flat rate. You could charge by distance. You could add for pieces, weight, and fuel. Mm. It all depends. But we do have a regular pricing program. Okay. That factors all of this in. So if you went to our website and you put the criteria in, it'll give you a price. It'll ask you, where are you going? From point A to point B, how many pieces, how much weight, and it gives you a price. Gotcha. So there's a standard pricing schedule, but if there's volume, if there's something that needs a discount, we'll look at it. Gotcha. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. What what makes you guys um, different than like the FedExes and the Amazons of the world. You want me to go there? I do. So you say FedEx, we'll go there first. FedEx, DHL, and UPS, they're driven by overnight delivery. Earlier, RDS was just an overnight delivery. From the early 1990s, we are a same-day delivery. So really, FedEx, UPS, DHL, they're an overnight distribution company. That's not me. I'm a same-day company. 
So when people need stuff, they pick up the phone and they expect us to get it from point A to point B same day. When they call FedEx, it's overnight. Gotcha. So a lot of lay people get confused about, they think every delivery is the same. It's not. You said it earlier. LTL, you're renting space on a truck. Distribution, overnight, same day, is same day. And the late person doesn't understand that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it definitely makes sense. So t- typically, can you explain like kind of like how your operation works? Because you have different vehicles, different size vehicles, like your, your dispatch kind of like in the morning, how many trucks you have going out? Because you said the same day. So everybody's going out and coming back the same day with everything that was on that truck, right? 90%. Or, or that, that van yeah. or whatever it is. So where are they picking up from to get into the end user? Kind of explain how the operation works. So think of a chessboard. And we have a courier platform. And we have a portal. So 39 or 42% of our business is coming through our portal where they enter their own data, pick up from point A to deliver point B. Everything comes in. We have live dispatchers that are dispatching the work and looking at the work through service levels and the type of freight to dispatch it to the right van, the right sprinter, and the right truck to hit the right service level. Gotcha. Okay. So... Is there ever a time when you where you have like equipment sitting or like is it just usually typically day to day all the vans are dispatched and they're kind of out? It's another great question. And you hit on a question. Is there equipment sitting? And here's the difference between an employee-based company and an independent contractor company. When you have independence and you get a million dollar piece of business, how do you ramp up for that? Right. It's fair. Right, fair, very fair. Right, so if you're working with independents and there's a certain amount of capacity they have and then you get this piece of business, they keep, how do they handle it? So as an employee-based company, I make sure that I have at least a million dollars of capacity so I could absorb new business, right? So it's a chessboard. I understand how much I want to grow every year and then I need the capacity to meet the anticipated growth. And I need to invest in vehicles and employees so I can absorb it. Got you. So back to your question. Yeah. We could have equipment that's not aggregating money or building money, but it's there for the come. Okay. Okay. So there's never a point where you feel as though, hey, we may need to scale back on people or equipment because we're paying for this stuff and it's not being utilized to its full potential. Only in the pandemic. Okay. Only in the pandemic, March 20th, the government shut it down. I'm an essential-based company, and I thought about what am I going to do with all these vehicles and all these people. Let's, let's frame that. How, how many vehicles are you sitting on at that point? How many people are here at when the pandemic hits? 135 people, probably 25 vehicles, and I lose half my business. Where do we go from there? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I'm in a I all right. Know. So I'm in a new facility. At that time, I was here 13 months. I'm in business for 35 years, and I looked up. I really looked up, and I said, "Is this how my career will end?" Mm. Only for a second. 
What was the first thing that happened? Like, what was the first phone call that you got that let you know, like, oh, man, it's about to hit the fan? Like, what? It's another great question. I have a lot of inside information because I network a lot. So I knew Friday, March 20th was going to happen two weeks before. And I the following week, I asked 50 people, you have to go. And I'm going to segue for a second. The only people that stayed internally was anyone that could multitask, who could answer a call, who could dispatch, who can collect money. Right? So we only kept the people, not because I wanted to, but because that's what the government served to us. Right. And then as business came back, we asked everyone to come back. Got you. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. So talk about the, the interim what was going on during that time after, you know, obviously it was catastrophic. You had to do layoffs for the moment. Like, what were you thinking? What was the plan? Was there a plan? 35 years. Is this the way I'm going to leave my career 13 months into my new 10,000 square foot facility? And I invested over $350,000 into this facility. Right. I went home. It's all my wife. I'm going to work six and a half days a week, and I'll make it happen. Because I needed to prep her because I, was, I wasn't going to be home. And then I think I showed you earlier where we delivered over 350,000 meals. You did. Can you talk about that? <clears throat> a random act of kindness by helping my client base. Um, I'm not a fan of... I really want to say this. I wish that city and state officials had the opportunity to run businesses and or work the day in the life and or work the week or a month in businesses. I think that would make them more savvy on how to shape law and help small business. Mm. I think city and state officials and people that work for the government make decisions based on what they think and they don't have a good perspective on how to shape law. That's gotcha. what I believe. What do you think they're missing? Empathy? Is it just the They don't understand. It's um, a great question. What are they missing? I believe they're operating. I believe, and I could be wrong. Right. I believe, and I could be wrong. But I don't think I'm wrong. <laughs> I want to be clear on that. Yeah, for sure. They're making decisions from how they feel from their community with lack of experience of what it takes to run a small business. What does it take to recruit a new customer? What does it take to recruit labor, hold the labor, and make life happen? And so they missed that. Imagine that you're in politics and you shape law and you have zero experience of running a business that's either a million, five million, or 10 million. I really want to hold you accountable and say, who are you? Right. Who are you to shape the law and you have zero experience? It, it's an atrocity. Right. Right. So so what was the main thing that those people in those positions did that you're kind of referring to that impacted you the most? They did nothing. I shaped my own. <laughs> they did nothing. They did absolutely nothing. Here's the here's the sham. Or I'm disappointed. So let me ask you a question. Sure. If you were a city official or you were in politics, 
mm-hmm. and there was a city contract that came across your plate, and you had to give it out. Don't answer this question, but I want you to think about it. Okay. Would you think about giving it to your family, friends, and cousins before you went out to the people that could actually do it? Man, that's that's <laughs> the easy one. I would definitely give it to the people who would actually do it. Well, that's for you. 100%. But it's not the way it works. Right. I'm in power. I'm not. If I was in power and I have these contracts, this is my observation. I'm always going to say I could be wrong. But I've watched it. Opportunities go to family, friends, and not necessarily the people that are going to get the job done the right way. Mm. But we could put that in a parking lot because I don't want to take this down a a rabbit hole. I got you. I got you. But if we go back to the 350,000 meals, I think to end this particular segment, a random act of kindness of doing good mixed with monthly emails that I've been doing for four years, that email was a piece that saved this company. So we're doing emails for four years straight. That's 48 months. Building a community of sharing what goes on behind the curtain. We're not selling anything. We're just telling a story and sharing stuff. Okay. And through that email, from that one random act of kindness, connected us to so many people that we were, we were able to help. And that was the turning point for our company. Got you. And, and could you, I mean, can you expound on what you guys did? Because I think you're kind of understating like the- We are understating it. What, what you guys did. I mean, I, I, I saw it. So I'd like you to talk about it. Imagine my customer for eight years say, hey, Larry, look, we got a guy, one of our customers just donated 30 grand. And they want us to use that $30,000 to deliver 250 meals a day to the frontline heroes, community-based organizations, and senior citizen shut-ins. So we know who the frontline heroes are. Yeah, A community-based organization or a CBO are people in a community that still lack but need. And then you have senior citizen shut-ins. Fair? Yeah. So you have this random guy that says, hey, I love you, Phil. I'm giving you 30K. But she calls me and says, how am I going to deliver this? I said, I don't know. I'll show up with a truck. We'll figure it out. <laughs> and that's what happened. Got you. And I did it. And I did it. And I did it for weeks. And she says, you have to bill me. And I said, I can't. I don't feel right. Let's take care of the people. After four weeks, I did bill her. But I I billed her to cover gross margin and expenses. I didn't bill her from profit because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Right. But that random act of kindness, and we told that story over and over and over again, got me to... Another company. You want to hear that story? Absolutely. It's another company. I don't know if I want to tell the name or not, but huge real estate company. He opens up a non-for-profit, and the CEO of that non-for-profit takes a million bucks and puts it into the non-for-profit. Fair? Yeah. He has a bunch of clients that rent his real estate, and they're not working. So he takes the million and opens them up. And what does he need to do? They need to make food. To do what? Feed the frontline heroes, the community-based organizations, Mm. and the senior citizen shut-ins. Exactly what you've already been doing. And we use photography. That's why I showed you on those walls. 
And every time I was, um, so here was the critical point. Everybody was working from home. And I referenced earlier, I told my wife, I'm not coming home until I figure this out. And I would go into the street, see the opportunity, take photos. And I would share it with the person that was selling something, with the person that's buying something. And I would share photos. I said, I'm on the ground. I see it all. Mm. This is what we're going to do. And they trusted me because I was there. I showed the photos. And they saw some prior experience. And that's how this random act of kindness kept moving forward. Wow. Through photos and showing up. Showing up when everybody was working from home. Showing up when everyone was worried about COVID. How the media, shame on the media, brainwashed everyone. That's another story. <laughs> it's another story. Got you, got you. We, we won't go down that, that, that rabbit hole. Let, let's, talk about, let's talk about last mile logistics, right? Just because it, everybody loves the topic. First of all, what, what, is, what does last mile logistics mean to you if you had to put a definition around it? Let's divide that word. We have last mile and we have logistics. So if you call me and you want something moved from point A to point B, we can call that last mile. If you have something where you might want me to hold something, store something, receive something, now it's last mile and logistics. What does that look like? An example is just the other day, somebody from Oregon called my company. Hey, receive these boxes, receive them, hold them, call my customers, make an appointment and deliver them. Right? So that would be last mile and logistics versus John Doe saying, hey, move this from point A to point B. Mm. Does that make sense? Makes sense. Totally. So take me down a path where you want to go from there. So so basically, I, I want to kind of get to in building a last mile business, right? If 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 you're interested in building a last mile business, and and especially you've built a great business because you're, you 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 have a niche, right? So and you have multiple niches now, but you started with the niche and you kind of built the bulk of your business on that niche, and then you kind of expanded from there. True. Right. So. If, if someone, because a lot of people want to get into the space, they want to buy a box truck, they want to, you know, but they have no idea where to start. So my question to you is, how do you think about this space in order to get started to figure out what your path is going to be? That, another great question. And I'm not blowing smoke. <laughs> I'm glad well, you're paying you. attention and asking great questions. <laughs> it's true. If I could speak to my younger self, right? So you're asking me, this is what I thought I, thought I heard. If I wanted to get in the business, what would I focus on? Yeah. Fair? Fit. I'm 57, Simple. doing 35 years. The hardest thing when I was a kid was to focus on what it's going to cost me. Because I hated that. It was heavy. I didn't understand it. But I would tell any young entrepreneur to understand your cost and then price, which gives you more confidence and you can move forward. Easier said than done. For sure. Easier said than done. I can't say that enough times. Because what's more sexy? Top line gross income. And I'm going to say a few words and you're going to edit. Right? I got a bigger dick because I'm doing $100 million, <laughs> right? But I'm only making 3%. Or I know many companies that are doing $100 million and take down 5%. And 5% of $100 million is $5 million. You might say it's good, but here's the thing. To get to that $100 million and only make five points and take on all the liability and risk is horrific. Because you can go out of business at any time. Yeah. 
So people need to understand their costs, whether they're an independent contractor model or they're an employee model. Without understanding your cost and just winging it and looking at your competitor and think they're smarter, you have the opportunity to go out of business and get a lot of lawsuits. Mm, got you. So I'll expand. I'll, I'm going to segue off of that. So once you understand your costs, right, is, is the formula okay? Understand your costs and then put this amount of points on top of that. You have to. How do you How do you look at that? And how much points do you put on top of it? And how do you figure out what that number should be? Another great question. I love Shark Tank. <laughs> love Shark Tank. I, I love. love the, and I, I love it too. And I love the profit. Yeah, I love it too. And Marcus so, Lemonis? That's yeah, his name. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's Lebanese. I'm Lebanese. Okay, okay. And he was, I think, adopted. And he's from Miami. And I have half my family in Miami. He might be like your half brother or something. He could be. <laughs> but both of those shows are smart. But you asked the question, how do I mark up? At the end of the day, for every dollar that's brought into the company, 50% should be spent on cost of goods sold. Cogs, we'll call it cogs, or we'll call it direct labor. And I'll deviate in a minute. Yep. If I owned a liquor store, cogs, we're paying for the bottles. Fair? Fair. So if I own a liquor store, I got to pay for all the bottles. If I own a service business, I'm paying for the labor. Here's a third option. I own a restaurant. Then my cogs are about 30, 20 where I have to pay for my food cost and my labor, right? So when you own a restaurant, it's a mix. I got to pay for food cost and my labor. At the end of the day, for every dollar earned, 50% going out to cost of goods sold or direct labor will generate the right profit. As we get attracted to top-line gross revenue and not understanding the cost of business, we make deals that sacrifice the bottom line. Does that make sense? Yes. So many people look at a $5 million opportunity. Well, I know many sport figures. I'm not going to mention their names. They could make $5 million and spend six, or they could make $10 million or whatever it is at the time. And because they don't understand their budget or they don't understand their spend, they just... They go bankrupt. Mm. Does every customer deserve 50% gross margin? The answer is no. But if you're operating anything less than a 45% or 40% gross margin, it better be a million-dollar deal, and it better hit you in the core of what you do. Because when you stop op- when you start to operate out of the core of your business, you'll lose more money. Ask me why. Why? You really want to know? I really want to know. So people would say to me, hey, I have got a million-dollar piece of business or $500,000 piece of business, but it starts at 4 in the morning. When does my team come in? Let's say they come in at 6. Now, who's got to, who's got to manage 4 o'clock in the morning? The CEO? What is that all about? Then you need labor to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Who's managing the labor? So now you have an admin piece, you have a labor piece. More importantly, you don't have duplicity. Because you know in order to run a business, 
Not only do you need plan A, you need plan B and C because shit's going to fail. That's right. So when people start taking business outside of the core of what they do, they put the business at risk because they don't have enough support, manpower, and plan B and C to support the piece of business. Mm. They just got excited about what? Top line. It's like the cleavage in a bra. They got... They got caught up with top line revenue, right. not understanding the inherent cost about the grind. Who's going to support it when shit goes bad? I like that. I like that. Speaking of core, core competencies and, and, and niches, how important are niches in last mile logistics? And what are some niches that you think are exploding or that are you're interested in or that, that you think people should look into? If you had to give them a little bit of a jewel here. Give yeah, it's a, great, it's a great question. So everyone in my business or the last mile space is amped up because it's B2C. So we're going to use jargon, but we're going to explain it. Business yep. to consumer. If you don't have a business model where you have distribution, meaning deliveries coming into your warehouse, where you could do a physical distribution and then load up the vans and deliver, It can't do B2C. You can't do business to consumer. Business to consumer only works when you're able to load up the van and that van can make 100 deliveries a day. Does that make sense? Yes. So if that's what you want, you got to build that model. And it's going to cost a lot of money to invest in the infrastructure and then the time to acquire the customer. Does that make sense? Can you explain that a little bit more? Time to acquire the customer and infrastructure. The infrastructure is, if I'm getting thousands of deliveries, I need to be able to have a warehouse and a dock to receive it. Technology to scan it in, technology, and then people to sort it, and then when you load the van, scan it into the van. So there's accountability from the time you receive it, that's in your warehouse, it gets on the van, and then they can deliver it. And if they want to get into the B2C model, you're going to invest in an asset, labor, technology, and then you're going to have assets that are not at capacity. Mm. Because you said, hey, I like that piece of business. Somebody asked me the other day, hey, I got 10,000 units a day. I want you to deliver it for four bucks. I gave him a big hug. Big hug. <laughs> and then told him, go after yourself. <laughs> Well, well, first of all, where would they get that number from? I mean, they just throw a random number out there. How how do they know what your costs are? I love it. That's another great question. Everyone's calculating. It's a great question. How many deliveries can you do in an hour? And here's the sham. So let me ask you a question. You're in truck and hustle. Yep. Let me ask you a question. Talk to me. How many deliveries do you think you could make in an hour? You own a van. Mm -hmm. You're in a tight, dense market. Yeah. How many deliveries do you think you could do in an hour? Uh, so it would depend on where the deliveries are. It tight. Would on as tight it is. They're tight and tight. congested. Tight. As tight it is. <clears throat> I mean. You've got 60 minutes. If, if, you're looking at, if you're looking at a place like New York City, even though it's tight, it doesn't matter because you're still going to have these uh, other Ramel, variables. Ramel, that- don't give me the other variables. <laughs> I'm going to back into those variables. Okay. You, wanna, you want your audience to learn something? Yeah, yeah. This is a great question. Okay. Because you asked the question. Oh, all right. The question was, yep. how, how do you back into a number? It all starts with, 
How many deliveries do you think somebody can make in an hour in the most optimal setting? How many? I would say two to three. No, it's more. It's more. Could be. It could be up to seven. Okay. Think of a UPS truck. Hold on. And I appreciate where you're coming from. I have a little bit more experience. I don't know if it was a distribution. I don't know if it's the same day. But if it's a distribution, think of a UPS truck, a FedEx truck. They park it. And then they make deliveries. Okay. And it's tight. Okay. Yeah. So All right. So let's go that way. So Got I'm going to give you a different perspective. Yeah. But now with that perspective, how many deliveries per hour? I would probably say what you said, about seven to ten, maybe. So let's think about seven. I got 60 minutes, and I love this exercise. Seven into 60. What is that? That'd be about like nine. Eight minutes? Eight. eight yeah. Eight. So every eight minutes, I'm making a delivery. Is that feasible? Can I actually go? It could be, but that's optimal. So how much money, if they're doing eight deliveries an hour, how much money? Do I need to generate from that delivery? Hmm. In order to pay the driver. You and, got it. Yep. And then back into it. Mm-hmm. And then guess what? Let's say a driver's working 10 hours a day. And we're going to segue for a second. Yep. Let's go there. How many hours do you think he has of productive time? 10 hours a day. Go productive time. Go with your gut. And I want you to fail. Be wrong. It's okay. Yeah. So productive time, 10 hours, I'd say probably about seven hours. Good for you. Out of 10, I might give them eight. I'll tell you why. So if someone works for me for 10, I would say eight. I need 30 minutes of STEM time to get to my first stop. I need 30 minutes for lunch, even though he's going to take it whenever. He might go to a bathroom break, this, that. I need 30 minutes to get back to the base. So we're at 30, 60, 90. And I might need 30 minutes to load my truck. You know, I just found two hours out of a 10-hour day where my driver can't be productive. So that means he's being productive for eight hours, turning revenue, but it's got to pay for 10. Pay for 10, right. People miss that. It's like a doctor. They come, they do something for five minutes, and you charge me $10,000, and the doctor says, hey, I've been doing this for 30 years. Hmm. I love that. How do you, so do you, do you literally have all of this like on a spreadsheet? Like how are you able to have all these fixed costs and then these variable costs? Like what do you, how do you spread it out for yourself to look at it and get fanatical about these numbers? Good. And then then apply it to real life. I had to fail, fail, fail. I had to lose a lot of money and fail and keep failing until an Excel spreadsheet doesn't work for me anymore. Why? Because I don't want to see data a week at a time. I need to see trends. So I have a handful of metrics that I can look at a trend and then know if I'm in trouble mm. and then make a decision. I like that. Can you explain, like, go a little bit deeper into that? Like, what, what, yeah. what would be, like, the trend and then what you have to do to correct it? Okay. So let's start with number of deliveries. Let's start with payroll. Let's start with, right, so I'm looking at my gross margin. So I need to understand that if I'm doing a, as an example, 100 deliveries a day, it's going to generate X. Gross margin should be Y. And the company should look like this, right? So we project it. We project the scale, and then we take the data and put it against the scale. And if it's wrong, we got to make decisions fast. 
Most people can't do that. They can't. They ask, ask me why they can't do it. Why can't they do They're it? They're too fucking busy working in their business versus on their business, and they can't get to the metrics because they don't understand the cost. They don't have anyone to understand how to take the metrics and put it in a user-friendly fashion so they could see it. I need to look at metrics where it's user-friendly. Mm. So what am I looking at? What's important to me? You ready? Yep. I'm going to give you something, and you're going to laugh. <laughs> you could edit this any which way you want. <laughs> Think about Triple P. Okay. Triple P. Uh, right? When yeah. everyone got... Um, PPP. You got it. Yeah. They said spend 70% on salary, and the other 30% can go to overhead. Do you remember that, or that doesn't cross your mind? That I remember that. Okay. And it's false, but they don't know any better. Why? Because you have people in government and city and state that are making decisions that know nothing about a P&L. If, religiously, I spent 70 cents on every dollar for payroll, you wouldn't be talking to me. I'd be out of fucking business. Mm. That's why they adjusted it six months later. And they said, hey, you could put 60% towards payroll and 40% towards your overhead which is more normalized. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So for every dollar, and it goes back to something I said earlier, for every dollar earned, you really would like to pay 50% to gross margin. Gross margin being either your labor or your cost of goods sold. I get what the 60% is. You know what? I get it. 50% is premium. But then I'd have to protect myself that every dollar that I paid, no more than 60 cents goes to turning the service. Does that make sense? Mm, yes. But the government opened up and said 70. It's retarded. <laughs> I don't For know. Sure. Do you see it in your brain? No, you I see it. I'm, I'm, I'm painting a picture. I see it. I see it. I see it. So what are metrics to me? Payroll to sales is a metric. What is my total payroll to sales to make sure I see it on a trend that I'm not going to get go out of business? Why do I need to see it weekly in a trend versus waiting for my accountant to send it to me six weeks later? Can you tell me that answer? And if you can't, I'll fill it in. Fill it in. Just get I will. Right to it. Thank you. I will <laughs> fill it in. Because what happens traditionally when an accountant, you give them, hey, here's my month. Here's January. It takes them two weeks to give you the numbers. So I'm not getting information till six weeks later. What happens in six weeks? Things change. No, I pay, I made payroll. Right. If I'm doing $100,000 a week in payroll, I did 100K times six. Yeah, it's too I, late. You got it. That, <laughs> that, you got it. Yeah. So I need to see payroll to sales live weekly. I need to be able to understand gross margin to sales Live weekly. More importantly, not more importantly, equally as important. I need to understand how much I'm collecting daily and weekly to support this. Mm. Then I need to monitor how many jobs are we doing a day? Is the job count flat, down, or up to support my payroll, gross margin, and what is the cash flow going to look like? Does that make sense? Yeah. Can you explain the flat down or up for people who may not have caught that? So we go into business and somebody has to monitor 
If you're a restaurant, how many hamburgers are you selling? I'm in the delivery business. How many units are we selling? So for me, it's not about money anymore. It's a puzzle of percents. How many deliveries did we do today? And what's the impact on that on the week? What is the impact on that on top line sales, payroll, gross margin, right? So there's a handful of metrics that we must wrap our arms around to run our business on a weekly basis, on a trend analysis, not on an Excel spreadsheet. You want to know why? Why? An Excel spreadsheet shows you a picture for the week. A smart business person can't make a decision on a weekly basis because you're going to have certain seasons that are high and low. You're going to have holidays that take you down. And what you need to be able to see is a trend. And when you look at a trend, just like when you go for an EKG, uh, you look at your blood pressure over time, you're able to, you're able to see a bigger picture. Got you. Got you. When you, when you start understand, once you started understanding your metrics, talk to me about what was the increase in your margins. You don't have to give an exact number, but percentage wise. And then how does, how did that trickle down to your team? Once I understand that question doesn't make sense to me. I want to answer it. Okay. But rephrase. I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you. Yeah. Give it to me. So once you started understanding your numbers, yeah. I'm, I'm going to assume you were more profitable. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So how much more profitable were you? So the difference between not understanding your numbers and understanding your numbers, what was the difference in that profitability? And then how did that, once you became more profitable as a business, how does that trickle down to your team members? Good. I love it. So this is a twofold question yep. about understanding numbers, the impact of profitability, and then how we share. Yep. Did I understand that? Absolutely. Okay. So any business person, in my opinion, if they're doing it right, should understand what their salary should be if they needed to be replaced. And if I'm running a business and I have the liability and the risk, lawsuits and everything else, I should make X percent. I'm going to speak from 30,000 square feet. If you're running a $5 million business, Maybe the CEO should take 150K plus 10% of profit. If you're running a $10 million business, I think the CEO should take 250 and 10% profit. So then it's on the leadership, it's on the CEO to get his leadership to share any point that's greater than 10% to give back to his team over and beyond once they're fairly compensated. So, I'm a leader of my company. I want every one of my leadership team to be compensated over and beyond. But now I have to give them a metric, not a bonus of what I feel they should be. I don't want to be the daddy. I need to be able to say, hey, I'm going to give you one or two points of my profit. And we're going to slice and dice that based on A, B, and C. That's the way to do it. Mm. But you're only talking, we only can get there once you're doing five to 10 million and then some. Very hard to do that south of $5 million. Gotcha. What, what are some, did, I, did I answer your question? You did. You did. Very perfectly. What, what, are some of the other, uh, other, what are some of the things that costs that people, you think, miss? Because we talk about not knowing your costs, right? What are some of these costs that people miss when they're 
trying to understand their numbers. They're not going deep enough. What do you think is like probably the the most, the biggest thing that hits you in the head? You should definitely know this and then kind of go back, backwards from there. I think you're the smartest guy in the room. He keeps asking good questions. Hold on. That's <laughs> true. He asks good questions. And you have a lot of patience. I do. I do. I've learned. Wow. You asked a lot of questions. Good. I'm going to ask you to say it again because I heard it, but I want to make sure you get it down to a sign so I can give it. Ask okay. it again. All right. So basically for a business owner in, in this space, what are what is the what do you think, in your opinion, is the main cost that most business owners miss, the, the outstanding cost that they shouldn't miss for sure? And then kind of go backwards into some other ones, back up into some other ones that you think are kind of ancillary, but these are also important too when you're looking at your numbers. All right. I'm going to answer it, but I'm going to give you some context. Okay. I'm going to veer left. I believe this. I believe early entrepreneurs have the opportunity, and again, I could be wrong, to over-leverage and overlive. So they could buy a house that's too much money that forces them into a situation where they take too much money out of the business for their lifestyle. Is that fair? Yes. When we suck the business for lifestyle, we don't have, and I'm, I'm going to answer your question, money to make sure that our team is safe and secure, which equals understanding a fair market value for their salary. What does a 401k look like? What does an investment in culture look like so we spend money with the team to give them experiences to raise their awareness about the effect they have on the company? So over and beyond salary, are we giving 401k? What do those perks look like back to the company as opposed to over leveraging as a CEO and bleeding the company living for their lifestyle? Mm. Does that make sense? It does. A hundred percent. I'm glad you went there too. Like you said, you went a little left, but it's important because a, a lot of us as business owners, when we start experiencing income that we haven't experienced before, we tend to overspend. It's just kind of natural, you know? So I'm going to go this way. Yeah. I intentionally make less money in my company. I'm 57. I want to give it back to them. I want to make less so they could make more. So all I can do is steer the ship. I don't need every dollar. Right. I just need to steer the ship. And they look at me for that because they know that I'm giving them every perk available until they cross the line of entitlement or personal agenda. Then we go back to core values. It's not a fit. Have a nice day. Mm. It's easy for me at 57. (laughs) Not when I was 32. Mm. Gotcha. Makes sense or no? Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. Now you got to dive into the other part of the question. One. So the, the, that was the first part, but but I wanted to. I was talking about like actual business expenses, like not personal expenses, like insurance, think different things like that that will come up. That maybe when they're looking at. So you're talking about a business person that yeah. can't forecast some of his um, overhead. Yeah. Cost of goods sold, and variable cost. Yeah. So, so, so what, 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 are, what are the, what is the most, what is the thing that you should think about the most? In like this what's business? most important in this business? Yeah. Two things that can kill you. <laughs> it depends what type of model you are. I smile and I smirk because I've danced in both models. So I will speak to the employee model. 
if anyone out here is an employee model running a same-day messenger logistics trucking company, you will have to focus on what does your work as comp look like? What do those premiums look like? And when someone gets hurt, what do those three years or four years look like? And then, and then car insurance. Car insurance. What is it? What do your premiums look like? And do you have a safety plan in place so when you have to re-up on your car insurance, you don't let your broker speak about what you're going to pay? You've got to go to the underwriter. I would say that every single day of the week, car insurance on an employee model is the biggest expense you're going to have. That CEO has to go to the underwriter and not have a broker speak on his behalf. I go to the underwriter and say, hey, here's my safety plan. Write me a contract that makes sense. Otherwise, you become a number. Mm. You could have uh, 6 to 7% of your gross income going to car insurance, which could make you broke. I hope I answered your question. You did. You did, definitely. Outside of the numbers and the things that people pull their hair out about, um, which you've obviously tapped into and you understand them very well. There's another part of the business that I really see illuminating and shining here, your brand. You built, you built the brand here. You've built, you're very into branding, right? You have green. How much did you, you don't have to say the exact number, but how much do you invest in branding and, and how important is branding to you? And how important is that to a, a, a last mile business? It's another great question. Hey, he's got a lot of great questions. <laughs> You're killing me. <laughs> Hold on. I love him. Hold on. <laughs> um, I love your questions. Thank and you. I love where you're coming from. I backed into where I am. And I'll give you the backstory. I showed up to this property and I didn't know I was in an opportunity zone. Hear me. I showed up to this property, but I'm learning everything as I'm going along. This property that you're sitting in now, that I invested over 350K into this space, I did not know it was an opportunity zone. Ask me, WTF and what does that mean? WTF, what does that mean? (laughs) I didn't realize when I'm in an opportunity zone, and I'll use this space as an example. 10,000 square feet, you are required to spend $25 a square foot or a quarter of a million dollars. And then we will give you back the city program $3,000 per employee, not contractor per employee. So we'll use simple math. If I have at the time 100 employees, because I can't multiply by 150 so fast, but <laughs> um, 100 at 3,000 is how much? Uh, 300,000. 300, so for the next five years, if I only have 100 and I didn't grow, but if I grow, they'll give a hundred. They will give me 300,000 for the next five years. That's a million five. What did I need to do to earn the million five? I moved into an opportunity zone, which I didn't know. If I was smarter, I would focus on it. <laughs> right, right, right. But I backed into it, but I was a good I should, listener. I should listen to this. Pay attention. And the requirement was 
speak to a lawyer before you sign the lease, and make sure when you move into the property, spend $25 a square foot. So 10,000 square feet, I was obliged to spend a minimum of a quarter of a million. I spent 350. Mm. I couldn't help myself. Not because I couldn't help myself, but for all the things that we were doing, shit just happened. But right. I was okay with it. Right. By investing the 350, what did I get back? Uh, a minimal a million, a million change. five, yeah. million five. But really, it's on the employee count, right? So every year they look at your employee count and they give you three thousand dollars. Wow, wow. So a hundred, it's three hundred. Yeah. So using round numbers, five years, a million five, just for moving into an opportunity zone. Who paid for this organization? Me or the city? The city. 100%. They did it because they wanted me to pump money to have my people come. So the people here spend money in this community, right? And it's a an effect. Right. Domino effect. You got it. I was looking for that word. Couldn't get there. Wow. So I know you brought up brand, but we went there. But ask yeah. me the question that, about that, the brand. That, oh. no, that's, that's important. So so now, now we get back to, to the, the brand. investment. We just talked about the investment yeah. in the brand. So that money could have went anywhere, yeah. right? Yeah. But it Fair went enough. into the brand. Into uh, the okay. into the brand. So let's go to the brand. So... 2015, I'm going to go back for a second, when I changed the company from an IC status to an employee-based company, it was because there was a lot of lawless class action suits because of the Uber effect, the Amazon effect, and you had a lot of lawyers picking up low-hanging fruit to sue people not abiding by the independent contractor rules. Is that fair? Correct. Fine. I knew I was going to lose that war, so I converted to an employee company. And was this based on workers' comp? It was based on the fear of being picked off by lawyers that were swimming in our industry, not workers' comp. Okay. Just to sue us because we, because federal and state guidelines don't have a good measure of what an independent contract or law looks like across the United States. I'm going to say it again. You got federal and state rules that affect what an IC looks like across the United States. Every state, it's different. Yeah. Didn't like it. I converted. When I converted for 12 months, I had vans and I'm paying more money in workers' comp and car insurance. I'm going to get you to the brand in a second. Yeah. And when I'm paying workers' comp and car insurance and I'm getting my ass kicked and I'm losing profitability, what do I look at? How do I brand those vehicles? And that's when we get to the brand. Mm. So I invested more money into the brand, into the uniforms. And then when I came here, I was like, what am I, crazy? Why wouldn't I set up a sexy place to make sure that my internal team feels part of the brand that's in the street? And then we take that a step further. If I'm going to invest over 350K, then I want a facility that has retention, recruitment, prospects, customers, lunch, a podcast, my networking partners, they're all going to come here. Here's the real question that I ask anyone to your audience. How much money have we pissed away in bad hires? And we don't have the courage to take three hundred fifty or 400000 and put it into your physical asset to make it sexy. 
Then if you want to do the math, and I don't have my calculator, but I know the math in my head. If it's a 12-year lease, it's about 2000 a month. Who wouldn't want to come here and spend 2000 a month and feel good? And if you break 2000 a month over, whatever, 22 days, 25 days, 30 days, what is it? $100 a month? Whatever, $100 a day? Yeah. But think about how many people invest in the CFO, a human resource person, and it goes bad. What do they cost these days? Tell me a leadership position. What does it cost? A CFO? No, no. Uh, or Let's go this way. Think of our industry. Mm-hmm. Think of a leadership position. Yeah. And give me a normal. 80,000. Good. How many mistakes do we make? We could make two or three. Yeah. Well, if it was three, it was almost a quarter of a million. I want to put the money in my physical asset. And it was the smartest move in the world. And I didn't know it because everyone showed up after the pandemic. They were here mm. every day. Got you. Got you. So the team was happy. And why, why were they happy? Because they had a space that was comfortable. Um, and it showed that the leadership was invested in investing in them and, and their space. So I, w- I would think that that would ultimately in, impact them. You know? Absolutely. For that. But again, we're investing in the physical asset for a few things to your audience. Retention would be first. Recruitment would be second. Then we have prospects that are coming in that we want to sell. We have customers that are coming in to say hello. We want to do more business with them. Then we have our networking partners that we want to, they come in and they show up and they love it. And then we have our vendors. Six types of communities that are coming in all the time. Yeah. Not to mention you. So you're the podcast. You're the seven. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Why, why, why do you think that last mile is such a, a sexy topic in, in your opinion? It's not. I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so for you, it's not sexy because you've been doing it for 30 something years. I made No, nope, 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 nope. I feel. Hold on. That's a really interesting segue. Okay. Okay. I'm 57. And I am reborn, reinvigorated. I can go to private equity. I could buy everyone. But the real question is why? Is I, and I didn't know this. It's not because I'm smart. I reinvested back in my company and every day I come here, I love it. Most people don't reinvest. They're tired. They're living in an old space. They don't know how to get out of their own way. They don't have this shit that makes them happy. Right. So they're checking out. When you pump or write a check, make something vibrant, I can keep going. Mm. So I'm not tired. So that's what motivates you. Just 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 continuing to feed uh feed the company and growing it and watching the things happen around you. That that's what wakes you up every morning. What wakes and, and- me up every morning is that I believe that I created a space. That is great for my team. It's great to buy other companies or bring them underneath my roof. And there's opportunity all around me. I needed to invest back into my job. Do, do you still actively sell? Oh, I'm a, I'm a machine. <laughs> but I'm not. Hold on. But let me, uh, I will give you an analogy. You familiar with the Yankees? A little bit. You know Mariano Rivera? 
I've heard the name. I'd like to think I'm a good closer. Okay. So I do have salespeople here. They all need help and support. I coach them, but you came into this place. Lobby, conference room, we sit, I'm closing. My right. job is to help my team close, but it's not closing a sale. It's really educating the prospect about the value we have or if it's a good fit. And if it's not, let me point you to my competitor. I don't want people's money if it's not the right fit. Mm. I don't want to do business if it's not the right number. Yeah, yeah. For someone who's for, for someone who is is afraid of sales, what 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 would be the advice that you would give them? Wow, if somebody is afraid of sales. I think that's something. Are something you saying that people, if the CEO is afraid of sales? Well, I mean, a lot of young CEOs and people who are just starting business, they, they're it's it's difficult for them for them to have those conversations and close and 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 you know stand their ground and these type of things that come with sales like. What would be the advice that you would give them in order to increase their skills? I love it. Another great question. What did you train them on all these questions? You're killing me. <laughs> um, I love sales. So I'm going to go backwards. And I say this to my brother, who's my partner for 35 years. I say this to my team. I tell this to my wife. I only want to play to my strength. Everything else, it's my responsibility to hire it out or get my team to train it. Why do I want to be anywhere in my business where it's given me pain? God gave me talents and it's taken me a lifetime to understand what I'm good at, but I know where I'm good. Everything else needs to go away. Mm. Did, I love that. Did I answer your question? Yeah, for sure. And so, so what's happening with CEOs or younger people This is interesting. It's going to go a few ways. I referenced earlier, I want to be the dumbest guy in the room. People call me up. You're the president of the company. You know the answer? No. Can you imagine? I make a joke out of it. No, I don't fucking know. I don't know the answer. But I can get it. Right. It's not my job. My job is to earn trust from my people. My job is to make sure that I know the numbers. And my job is to make sure that the culture is right. But there's something wrong when we're young, either because we're uneducated, we don't know, nobody trained us. I don't need to know all the answers. And then other people feel inferior to go hire a salesperson and or they don't want to invest in a salesperson and or they don't know the metrics. So if you want to go there and about salespeople, let's talk about that because I think that's important to your 100 percent. All right. So let's talk about a salesperson. Somebody coached me on this. I'm not going to tell you who. It's really not that important. How does a young entrepreneur hire a salesperson? I'm going to ask you numbers. If you don't know it, push it back on me. Sure. I don't know. These days, what does it cost to get somebody that could, and I'm saying this respectfully, mm -hmm. read, write, communicate orally, on email, on text, and communicate. What does that base salary look like? I'd say around 35 to 40K. No way. No way. No, nope, nope. But you're from another state. So I'm not going <laughs> to hold you liable for that. In my to, world. To read, write, and, and that's it? Send an email? Well, no, You're not no, talking no. about a lot of skills. Okay, here. then I get you know, Is this no, somebody who's college? A salesperson. Okay. Sorry. So basic. 
Just, just um, look. The college no, educated I'm four a C- years. I'm a CEO. Okay. And I want to hire a salesperson. Okay. I can't hire the guy that's got a book of business. Okay. I need to hire someone that has a good heart. Yeah. A good spirit. Yeah. That can communicate. That I could train. That he could learn. He needs to make a good living. Yeah. He needs something. It's not happening at 35 to 40K. I mean, you're going to do some type of base in the commission. Yeah, I am. So right? we need to start. Let's call it 60 plus commission. I was going to. Right. Okay. Okay. And, and I don't want to split hairs here. But here's the real question before we get to commission. Most CEOs don't understand the following. What does it cost to break even on 60000 This is really gold. Yeah. So if I hired you tomorrow, Ramel, and you work for me for 60000 forget about the commission. How much do you think I need to earn in top-line gross to break even just on the seat that you're sitting in? And I didn't know that. I had to learn that. It's a great question. I, I don't know. I'm crippled. I don't have my calculator, <laughs> but I'm going to go there. <sighs> so we're going to use an example of 10%. Let's just say we always make 10%. Whether we plus or minus. So you would have to earn me 600000 in gross revenue. If I get 10% to break even, what's 10% on 600000 60, k mm-hmm. So what do I need my sales per In this particular example, what do I need you to generate for me? Before I break even. 600000 You got it. And guess what? That's not happening in the first year. Right. Why? Because the first three months, I need you to figure out the culture, systems, and process. The second three months, three to six, I got to hold you accountable to work within my CRM so I could monitor your emails, your notes, your appointments, and coach you, yada, yada, yada. I'm hoping between six and nine months that you're actually starting to build a book of business where I become profitable in year two. So my job when I hire salespeople, when I know this formula, and you're getting 60K and it costs me 600, that I'm going to walk you to the door either at the end of the third month or the sixth month if I don't see metrics that I set up. You don't need sales because the first three months, there's no metric for a sale. Between three and six months, I could look at notes, emails, appointments, and back them into a metric. Mm. Does any of this make sense? Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And how much was I going to pay you in the first year? Do you remember? 60K. And this Plus is, commission. And this is what someone taught me, which changed my life forever. You're not making a 60K higher. You don't like that person? Walk them to the door. When am I going to walk him to the door? Six months. What did it cost me? 30000 And guess what? Anyone that worked for me for 30000 got some accounts and that would pay for the thirty. And then I learned life's lessons from that thirty. And I'm not going to make the same mistake again. So it's incumbent on upon the CEO to pay a fair salary and then coach him up or fire him at the six months didn't cost them 60 it cost them 30 and then there's some attribute of customer revenue that covers it over time does yeah, it make sense yeah, or no? no it makes a lot of sense it makes a lot of sense who's giving the ceo permission to do it who's giving him permission to spend that money or invest that money 
Where is he getting benefit value? How is he going to hire it? How does he sniff it out? And so you should go down this way. Every CEO should be part of communities. Entrepreneurs organization, execs, YPO, or communities where they're surrounded by like-kind business people where they could share their strengths and weaknesses. Make sense or not? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Did we go off course or no, we, we are answering we, questions? We, we are answering questions perfectly, uh, extremely well. Uh, all right, so we, 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 we talked about profitability. We talked about numbers, KPIs. We talked about culture. Um, at 57, you said you're yeah. on there, right? What, what, what do you see in the next few years for you? Where, where, where is your, uh, wh- where are you headed? What's, what's the next couple steps for you? Because, I mean, you've had, a, you've had a 30-something year career at this point. You keep on going or you could just, you know. I would advise every, everyone in your audience to diversify. So you don't know this about me. I have multiple streams of income. I'm invested in a liquor store. I'm invested in real estate. I'm invested in RDS. I'm invested in cash and other investments. So why am I saying all of this? As a young entrepreneur, don't have all your eggs in one basket. Figure out how to diversify, whatever that is. Got you. We want multiple streams of income to hedge and protect us from tragedy, a pandemic, a 9-11, a financial collapse. Why would we put everything into one basket? Yeah, love it. Talk to me about exit strategy. Do you have a number? Sure, I have a number. Oh, I love this. You're going to take me there. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So we're going to work this. But first, I want to understand your question. Sure. Do I have a number? Yeah. So what, is, what does that mean, that this, question? Can somebody walk in this door right now, sit me? in your beautiful lobby and say, hey, this is my number, and that's the number you'll accept? So before you came here, mm-hmm. I entertained a young lady that called me for a half hour. I didn't even know her. She wanted me to buy a business from somebody. You ready? Yeah. And then I'll answer your question. Okay. They're doing 900K. She said he's doing between eight and a million. I said, let's call it 900K. How much is he making from the 900K? She called it 220 Right? Yeah. Salary, net, net, net. That's what I understood her to say. And he wanted six times the 220, which is a million two. Not effing Six time multiple. Okay. You got it. You can't get a six multiple when you're only doing, well, the 220 is a lie. Let's talk about this for a second. It's not a lie. If you're running a business for 900000 somebody's got to run it. Let's call it a $100,000 salary. So his profit really is 120. You can't get a six multiple on $120,000 of profit. You only get a three multiple for that. Mm. So his business is only worth 660. No, sorry. 360. And he was looking for something obscene, like six times 220. So six times two is like a million two and change versus 360. So let's get back to numbers. Yep. You asked me, if somebody buyed me tomorrow, would I sell? The answer is yes, but I understand this. I believe that every company that wants a higher multiple needs to do a million dollars of profit. 
a million dollars of profit, we're going to be consistent. Let's use 10% as profit. Okay. Forget about the salary. So let's go 10 million. You have a company. You've got a $10 million company. You don't want to run it. You're going to pay your CEO 250K and you're going to figure out some metrics and give them a bonus. Correct. Let's call it another 75K. All day tomorrow, I could find someone for 300 to 325 to run my $10 million company and watch the dashboard of metrics. Correct. That $10 million still needs over and beyond the 250 or the 325 we spoke about. So let's use round numbers over and beyond the 300K. That $10 million business needs to give me 10% profit. If it doesn't, fire me. <laughs> Right. Fair? Fair. 10% on 10 million is a million. Correct. Once we start to generate a million dollars plus of profit, now we get to command a multiple. That multiple could be anywhere from five to nine times. I don't even like five. So if I'm doing $1 million of profit, which is 10% over and beyond the guy that I'm spending, investing 300K to run my 10 million. If I can't get five, six, seven, eight times, so let's call it a seven multiple, why would I sell it? Right. So it's a seven multiple on one million bucks, seven million. So if I have a $10 million company, I don't want to cash out until I can get what? Seven million. Seven million. If you didn't ask me this question, I'm, I studied it. I want 70 to 75% up front. So if it's 7 million, I need 70% of seven. Seven times seven is 4.9 million. Yep. And then if you say you want me to have one or two year contract, I'll work it off, right? Because people are always worried about, well, what happens if the service, this, that, you lose customers. So Correct. everyone's going to have 25% of what happens if. Mm. But you need to take 75% off the table. Does this make sense or no? It makes a whole lot of sense. I, I, I love that breakdown. I love but, that but breakdown. But the multiple, so when you hit a million in profit, you get X multiple. Hit two million in profit, you get Y multiple. So if you had a $20 million company doing 10% of profit, you get two million in profit. That demands a higher multiple mm. than one million. Anything right. less than a million in profit. Not the perks, not the salary. We're talking about straight profit is three times. Anything less than a million. It's gotcha. bullshit. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. I love it. So what's your number? You asked me a very abstract question. <laughs> ask me. I, I'm not ready to sell. Right. Um, part of my job is to get to this brand top line and bottom line. I'm not going to be a hooker here. <laughs> I need to get to 20 million and still sustain 10% profit, uh, which would give me $2 million in EBITDA. And then let's call 2 million times a 7%. 7 times 2 is 1.7 times 2. 14. Yeah, 14 million. Nice. But need to earn those numbers. I'm not ready to go away. Right. But the principle is there. I'm not looking to sell. Yeah. So I would use the same guiding principles 
if I wanted to, so if I wanted to sell tomorrow because I lost interest, my health, I wanted to move to a Caribbean island, I would use the same principles. Most people don't understand the principles on how to buy a business and how to sell a business. That would be the truth. <clears throat> They're in love with the effort that they put in and they co-mingle their salary, their American Express, their Home Depot, their Costco, and all their perks, and they don't understand how to separate it. Mm. <clears throat> Does it make sense? Makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> and and, and it's, this is my final question for you. Actually, this is not my final question. I have one more after this. But... How does one know when their business is failing and when they need to give it up? Wow, that's an interesting question. I almost want to, how does one know when it's failing? Yep. How does one know when maybe you, you, things are just gone awry, it's just not worth it at this point, just throwing the cards? Or is there ever is there is is there ever that point? Does that even exist? I don't know. We're gonna go there, but how do you you do this on all these interviews? You have so much patience. You listen to everything. I love it. Hold on. I know how to go there. Um, this is an interesting question. I don't even. I, I'm going to answer it, but I think it's an unfair question. Okay. How do you know? That's why I asked how it. do you know when you check out? Yeah. How so, do you know when you check out? I think people check out on a few reasons. If they're losing money. If their interest is waning, if their health is waning, and if they're not happy with their personal life. That was four. So yeah. think about it. If I owned a business that was failing, I would want to sell it because I'm not happy anymore or my health is failing me, right? I, I, I said four of them. I can't even read my own handwriting. <laughs> But really, Ray so like a doctor over there. <laughs> um, but really, so a failing business is you're losing money and you have no interest. Yeah. So can you ask me a different question? So, so, so the thing is, I, I guess if you you are losing money but you still have interest, it's still worth the fight. Okay. If I'm losing money, and I might be losing money for A, B, C, and D. Correct. Then part of my job as a CEO is I should be involved with my industry association, which I am. I shared that I'm president. I have deep relationships because they could buy me. And they could absorb my over... They could absorb a lot of different... So building relationships with industry partners are important. So when shit goes good or bad, good or bad, this is important, good or bad, they could buy you or you could buy them. Mm. So, like I said, somebody called me today, and they wanted me to buy their business. I didn't like the numbers. I said, send me financials, get me a meeting, let's have a conversation. Maybe he's thinking that it's worth more when I could show him the value of what his business is and then bring him here. He might say, hey, I'll sell it to you for X and give me a job for two years. Yeah. I don't know. Well, how many of those type of opportunities do you get? Every day. Every day, people call me. Hold on. Let me retract. Multiple, multiple times a year, people want to roll me up. I don't want to be rolled up. I'm either going to roll people up because I think I'm a different breed. I don't want to be rolled up by other people. Ask me why. Why don't you want to be rolled up by other people? I have a very great brand. I'm connected differently throughout New York City. And I believe my brand could command a higher multiple. 
and I'm not looking to be rolled up to be a commodity. Mm. Makes sense or no? It makes a whole lot of sense. So could, you, could you explain what rolled up means for the people who may not understand what that means? So there is plenty of friends that I know. They uh, think Uber, think private equity. I can go to private equity tomorrow and have a conversation. And I don't expect anyone that's just starting out that's a brand new CEO or running a million-dollar business or a multi-million-dollar business. I think they might – maybe they do, maybe they don't. But it's really understanding what your niche is, what your vision is, and then going to private equity and making a sale and saying, hey, here are the reasons why I want your money. And then they give you the money and then they give you conditions on what to do with it. So in a perfect world, if I wanted to, I can go to private equity. They can give me X capital. I could buy all my tied partners. I could bring them here into this community. And I could merge all of their back ends, and it could be very efficient, mm. very efficient. Why? We don't have the fixed overhead. We don't have all the variable costs. And if you take me there, I'm working with the remote team, mm. which is a third of the cost, but I didn't do it for the third of the cost. The remote team brings me culture, skill set different than the people from the United States, and savings. Got you. Got you. Well, man, this has been a master class. What is a master class? There's a lot going on here. And I don't know how you're going to slice and dice all this information. Listen, this is a, a, my mind is just like crazy. I mean, you gave such great, detailed, transparent answers. That's why I just had to keep on going deeper because I'm like, man, like he's willing to share it. We need to get it. We'll share it, but I would share this. (laughs) it will share this we shared off the camera yep about prenuptial agreements right yeah just talked about about that yep and this is important i want to tie it into the business okay okay cool i'm not going to go deep on what we shared but i will share this the law is antiquated the law is ambiguous and the law will be litigated so i would encourage any business owner if you're going to get involved with another company Figure out how you get divorced before you get married. You need to understand your exit strategy so when shit hits the fan, you can get out. And we're all respecting each other. Yeah. Right? Too many people make a rush to get into business because it feels good. Kind of like when you're dating a woman for the first time or a guy for the first time. Feels good. And no one's thinking about how to exit. So... Figure out how we're going to exit. I think that's super important. So important. And a lot of people don't think about that at all. So I'm glad you brought that up. And we're going to go. We're going to go spitfire a few things, right? Okay. Can we spitfire a few things? Let's do it. I'm ready. I think every business owner should be looking at um, 401ks. They should be looking at whole life insurance. They should be looking at term life insurance. I think if you're in business partnership, you should figure out not only how to exit, but Give these documents to your spouses so, God forbid, something happens to you. There's trust and estates, and you protect yourself from tax liability. There's just so much stuff going on. So I would encourage, encourage anybody in the business world, go figure out how to be part of a community, whether that's the Chamber of Commerce, Entrepreneurs Organization, a partnership, some type of networking group, where you get to change ideas, mindset, 
and perspective so you can grow as an entrepreneur. 100%. So we typically do the final thought on this show, but I, 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 I don't even know what could be your final thought because you've given so many. I think that was kind of like a final well, thought. Well, I have honestly. another final thought. I was hoping you'd say that. Talk to I me. was blessed um, back in 2000. I went to my first industry conference that was local at LaGuardia Airport. And I went, showed up, and somebody saw me leaving. And he said, where are you going? He said, stay. And he encouraged me. And he encouraged me to get involved, not only at the local industry level, but he taught me how to fly. And I've been flying for 20 years to go to conferences. And that education changed my life. Although it interrupted my married life, and it did, because my wife didn't understand that I'm going to get on a plane three times a year and fly. And we had some issues about it. Until this day, my mentor came with me when I received the award um, three months ago. We see him in Aruba, but he changed my life forever. I encourage every CEO to get involved in their industry organizations at a local and national level, because what we learn are, are a few things. We learn education, we network, we learn about government affairs and politics, and then opportunity that falls to our states. I, I've made over a million dollars just by showing up. Wow. And 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 important word you said there was mentor, man. Even the mentor has a mentor, huh? Wow. <laughs> so what does that mean? Even a mentor as a mentor. Because you are, I mean, with your experience and your knowledge, you're definitely a mentor, I'm sure, to someone. I right? am. I'm a, I feel like I'm a mentor to my wife, my kids, but more importantly, I'm a mentor to my team and my remote team. Right. 100%. So saying that to say that you even are still continued learning, even at the point where you're at in your knowledge and what you know. Okay. Another great question. Hold on. He's killing me. <laughs> Um, I'm grateful that I met a professor in college who taught me about mindset and continued education. Great segue. And I am who I am because I continue to learn every single day. There is opportunity to learn every single day. And we, we either go down that path or we set a seat to die. I continue to learn every single day. And I'm, it's, it's a blessing. Wow. Listen, this this has been a, a jewel packed episode live on location here at RDS. Listen. Oh, and also you are right down the street from Queensbridge houses. You know what rapper is from Queensbridge? Oh, my God. So you're going down that path. Hell I almost yeah. didn't move Hell here. Yeah. I almost didn't move Hold here on. for Queensbridge housing. <laughs> yeah. Ask me why. Why? When I moved here, two things almost stopped me from moving here. I didn't know that monstrosity across the street, which okay. when you went to the roof, it was Con Ed, right? We didn't know the gases and is that going to kill my employees? Right. And then Queensbridge Housing. Queensbridge. Because Queensbridge Housing, there was the most shootings and killings here 
The largest housing project. The lo- yes, okay, yes, but yes. When I studied it in the last twelve months, it was safe when I got here. Listen, so we said, let's go. Right, but the, so who the, is the biggest rapper? Nas. Nas is from Queensbridge Houses. I better call my daughter because my daughter Man, knows all about Nas, the rappers. He's like the he's like the goat of of rap. Is he? Yeah, Nas, Jay Z, Biggie. They're like oh. the Mount Rushmore of rap. Well, I got Jay Z, but yeah, I don't yeah, understand yeah, yeah. how he's got that vocab <laughs> and he's married to Beyonce. But that's a different story. Oh, don't go there. I'm not. Don't, don't let the on. beehive yeah, get, get, get on there, you. But, but, but Nas. 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 He's from Queensbridge. He always talks about it. You got to check out Nas. N-A-S. Okay. So before we go, uh-huh. it's interesting that you bring up Queensbridge. It's because of the investment that I made here that we had our Queensborough president showed up here and everyone in this community. So we had about 100 people show up where we raised uh, money for and votes for our Queensborough president. Okay. Okay. But it all started with Queens Projects. Queensbridge Projects. Yeah, we when we were riding by, we you know that was like this a trip down memory lane. Queensbridge Projects. It's it's it, in the hip hop community. Queensbridge is like when one of the, the most last, popular. And when was the last time you were here? I, I don't, I don't, I don't come here at all. Well, you visited, but and you I knew felt it. like I was at Disney World because I saw Queensbridge Projects. I'm I'm from Brooklyn. We don't come over, you know, on this side. But this is we saw Queensbridge, right? So we had Queensbridge, Nas's projects. So yeah, so that's you know that's my that's favorite hip hop artist. That is amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. But listen, Larry, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Just you know, taking us around and showing us and just all the wisdom that you imparted on us today. We really you know appreciate it. I learned a lot. I'm gonna go back and listen to this interview and just take some notes, man, because. Yeah. You gave us a lot, and, and, and I really appreciate your time today. Do me a favor, or yes. shout out to your audience. Yes. Know your numbers. Know how much stuff costs. And I promise you, those things are life-changing from confidence, because you can't buy confidence and belief in the supermarket. I can't go down aisle one and buy it. It's earned. Confidence and belief is earned, and it's earned through understanding the numbers and your pricing. So you can have a conversation with your customers and share with it's a good fit or it's not and why. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent hustle fam. If you can't respect that, your whole perspective is whack. <laughs> it's the truth. <laughs> it's this truth, man. This has been an awesome podcast. You know what we say around this time? If you smell something burning, it's only your desire. Myself, Larry, RDS, we are out. If you twisted, confused, or stuck about trucks, don't be dumb. This is the place to come. Truck and hustle. Let's go!